doesn't it bother you that, you know, no one else is going to be able to make these flutes once you're gone? Nah. But then it's all going to end. Listen, it's not so tragic. The world used to be full of things which are no longer. Mastodons and saber-toothed tigers, Indian tribes, herds of buffalo. Everything gets gone sooner or later. It's a lay of the land. Things become extinct. Things become extinct. The name of the episode, and also the theme of the episode. Ideas, people, identity, the passage of time, kind of just warps throughout and we can see things just flittering in and out. Very morose. But it wouldn't be Northern Exposure without things being morose. Oh, you think Northern Exposure is a very morose show? I wouldn't say it's necessarily very happy, like always sing-songy, glee club, everything's going to be okay at the end of the day. I think that many episodes, this one including, there's a sadness that underbellies it that things aren't always concluded properly at the end. Interesting. I don't know. I would say it definitely has comedic elements, you know, but uh, I think I see what you're getting at, the idea that maybe it's more in its own thoughts, yeah, it's it's pondering the way that we live and the way that civilization should carry on forward. Yeah. But mm-hmm. in this episode's particular case, it's saying how we're going to leave the planet one day, memento mori, all things will end. And when they end, the idea of them will no longer exist, whether it's the making of flutes, whether it's the actual person itself, or whether it's the, an ethnicity. Yeah, that's true. This is a very sort of heavy episode. You're not wrong. You know, everything is sort of, we're realizing that these ideas, these people, this art, you know, it's going to be lost one day. Um, And that's the theme of this episode. You're right. Hang on. Before we go back to being 14 years old and listening to Linkin Park and, you know, going down that path, you know, like emo. This is the emo episode? (laughs) (laughs) No, we're not going to do it on that path. But this is the Northern Overexposure podcast, where we talk about the television series Northern Exposure. My name is Charles, and I'm joined by my co-host, Lee. That's right. Lee is my name. I've seen this show a few times. Charles, this is your first time watching every episode, and we said it already. This is uh, the episode called Things Become Extinct. It's in the third season. It's the 13th episode of this season, and um, yeah, maybe let's get started. So in this first scene, Ed is looking for a subject for his next documentary. This one's not going to be like, you know, the last one where he sort of documented day-to-day life in Sicily. This one, he's looking for, what does he say? Somebody who can make something um, or do something like nobody else can do. Yeah, he's looking for that organic, original person or idea in Sicily. And, you know... Everything that happens in this first scene, what he's like delivering something to the brick and he's asking Shelly, you know, I, I need, I need a subject and everything that comes up in front of him, it sort of becomes disenchanted. Like he's thinking about Holling's famous pie or something. And Shelly tells him, um, no, he got that recipe from the back of a, you know, cake mix the, box or something. Yeah. Back of the jello or box. Jello container. I used to do that all the time. Oh, what? I would read the back of containers, <laughs> oh. like see like the recipe or the little trivia that they would have on it, or even just like the list of ingredients. Just I really imagining, like something imagining that food instead of <laughs> whatever you're eating. And uh, what else is it? He sees Marilyn's uh, a, a nice bag, and he asks if it's you know Indian made, um, but she says no, it's from the Bloomingdale's catalog. 
Yeah, he's doing this all for a film project that he's answering at the back of a magazine, saying that they're going to pay him if they can find this. Right. And uh, the area code that they want you to send the the film to is 42309, which is in Kentucky. Yeah, Kentucky doesn't sound like a very bustling, you know, film community, but, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Anyway, I did want to say that ad that he answered, he said he answered it from a publication called Filmmakers Market Quarterly. And uh, the paper says they need footage on a vanishing breed. And he would get $50 plus his name in the credits. That's like, you know, how much film can $50 even buy you? That, that seems like not a lot of money for what uh, the work that Ed's going to put in. Well, does the film have to be particularly long, though? Because what if you only filmed a few minutes? Like, would that be worth the $50? That's true. Um, even a few minutes. Let me let me get out my film calculator here. So even like a 20-minute interview would be over 700 feet of 16-millimeter film, which I think is what uh, Ed is using in this episode. And, you know, a roll of film is, is I think, 400 feet. So that would be like, you know, a couple cans of film. And I don't know what the price of film was back at, back in the 90s, but... I think it's, I don't think it's very cheap. I think it's like $100 or more. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, he's totally getting played then. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in his name in the credits, that's just like such, uh, it, it doesn't sound uh, like a great deal. You know what Ed should have done? He should have filmed the magazine itself to show that printed <laughs> media was going to become extinct. When was the, yeah, when was, uh, yeah, that's, it would be way ahead of his time, I guess. He would have predicted it, but... <laughs> Yeah, I, I kind of like that idea, though, of imploring people around the world to go find something within their community that will no longer exist in the future. Yeah, it kind of made me think, like, was this a thing that happened? Did people put out ads in uh, filmmakers' magazines like this? Because now today we have, um, like, stock footage archives, like, online, where you can just go around and um, sort of like a Google search, you know, a little search engine that whatever kind of footage you need, you type it in and it'll bring up all these clips for sale, you know? So I wonder if this was the thing. Well, I think it's mostly just the act of doing so is the part of the experiment. Like in my mind, I don't think they're actually going to peruse this film and say like, oh, this archaic piece of knowledge, now we know how to do it again. I think it's simply just to see them do it. That's the point of the art. Oh, no. Oh, you're talking about this, whatever this call is for, the ad? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like whatever the art piece would be. I think it's just on the topic. It's not sort of instructional. I think you're right. But um, no, yeah, just the idea that putting a call out for film, I've never heard of that today. I've, I've always just gone to stock footage archives. Mm. You know, you can find any scenario uh, in uh, stock photos. Like stock Getty photos, images. yes. Yeah. <laughs> Literally every scenario exists. It's fantastic. Uh, I had a friend who posed for like stock footage purposes and his, um, every once in a while, like photos of him from what, like 10 or 15 years ago will show up just in the weirdest places because, you know, basically he sold his image to be used in, in stock photos. Uh, you know, he, t he took a series of stock photos and every once in a while uh, <laughs> he's, he's featured in just random places. That's the funniest phenomenon that's happened post 2010, I would say. What's that? Because a lot of memes use stock photos and they just <laughs> yeah. get used over and over and over again. Like the first one that comes to mind is the guy where he's looking behind seeing 
a woman, but his oh, yeah. girlfriend is like, you know, looking at him like, hey, what are you doing? Like, I can only imagine like how those three people's lives changed, changed. overnight <laughs> in 2015, I want to say. Does that meme have a name? I What would you uh, call that? Yeah, because you described it, uh, you know, pretty well, I think, but it's I, hard. I, it's hard that it doesn't have a name. Jealous girlfriend? Jealous, meme? yeah, I guess so. Okay, well, let's, let's, uh, let's stick on track. So we're talking about... Ed's focus. Maybe let's just go down that plot line. So Ed is trying to find a focus for his documentary or whatever this project is, this uh, ad that he's answering. He needs to find uh, a subject that is, you know, something of a vanishing breed, as it's quoted. And as he's working in Ruth Ann's store, um, in fact, he's actually changing a light bulb as uh, Ira Wingfeather walks into the store to bring in a supply of duck flutes that he's hand-carved and wants to sell in Ruthann's store. Um, there's some sort of commission deal. It was like 50-50, like they kind of bargain it out. But uh, this is all happening, you know, as I said, Ed, you know, is changing a light bulb. He sort of like, you know, the light bulb turns on above his head. So he gets the idea that uh, he's going to study oh, Ira. Yeah. Oh, I didn't even put two and two together. <laughs> the image of the, it's kind of a blatant uh, image, I guess. Oh, yeah. I was more transfixed by the question that Ed was proposing, saying, do mm-hmm. all light bulbs last the same amount of time? And the answer is no. Uh, depending on the type of light bulbs, they have vastly different hours. So like, I think an incandescent light bulb lasts mm, about 1,000 to 2,000 hours. And I think an LED light bulb lasts about 25,000 to 50,000 hours, like much more yeah, longer. Uh-huh. Did you hear that podcast? Uh, it was a through line podcast where they talk about this consortium, this uh, sort of gathering of light bulb manufacturers where they all agreed to limit the lifespan of a light bulb so that, you know, it would be, you sell more light bulbs if they need replacing. You know, oh, planned obsolescence. Yes, exactly. The, that whole episode was about um, planned obsolescence and oh yeah, that's how, how you pronounce it. <laughs> and how they all got together and agreed to make inferior light bulbs. Huh. I, I know they did something very similar with Pyrex, which is the cooking container. That's oh, okay. Made of, uh, specialized glass. I think it used to last much, much more longer in the 1950s. But then uh, as the decades went on, they decided like, oh, their products were too good. Like they were lasting too long, decades long. So they made them much more inferior so that consumers would have to buy it all. Interesting. And then down the road, um, the Apple Corporation, you know, learned about that. And they just implemented oh. it on their phones. <laughs> well, okay. So anyway... Uh, Ed is going to be following around Ira and studying these duck flutes. And what's the first scene here that he spends with Ira? Are they walking around? Is it that they're walking around um, searching for a branch, right? Yeah, he's looking for a good Adler tree to chop down his branch so that he can turn it into a flute. And it's kind of neat to watch him do that because in his mind, he knows that amongst this field that they're walking in, one of these tree branches is about to turn into a musical instrument. And he even has a line about that. Each piece of wood has its own shape, which you must respect. My father used to say that in each alder branch lies a flute. Your job is to find it. Yeah, I really like Ira's sort of perspective when approaching this uh, this art. You know, he's, he takes his time and uh, there's a certain sense of calm to him and calculation, you know, 
Uh, it's just pretty fun to watch. And, you know, obviously Ed picked a, a pretty interesting subject. And w- we learn in this scene that Ira sort of comes from Hollywood. Like he lived down in Los Angeles or in California for some time. And throughout the episode, we learn, you know, he's been an extra in a number of productions. He's played a savage, you know, Indian savage in, in a movie before. And um, perhaps that could be why Ed maybe is a little fascinated with him because we know that Ed is is very interested in movies. I can't remember. Is Ed meeting Ira for the first time at Ruth Ann's uh, store or had he known about Ira before this? It's kind of left unambiguous. I would presume that he's met him before. Yeah. Because he even knows who he's named after. So he was even oh, yeah, from Ira the beginning. Gershwin. That's right. Yeah. So he says from that. the beginning, he was had show business in his name. That's right. Um, yeah. So that makes sense then that Ed is already sort of fascinated by Ira and he sees that Ira has this talent with the um, the duck flutes and, uh, you know, chooses to track him down. But before they can start uh, to make this duck flute, they must let the wood rest. You know, they take the alder branch back to Ira's trailer, I guess. And uh, Ed is like, okay, so uh, what do we do now? And Ira says, we let the wood rest. And it's like, I'm going to go to take a nap or something. Come back tomorrow. <laughs> so again, very slow, very calculated um, process. But that's part of it, though. The, right. the way that he's making this flute, which presumably he learned from his father or forefathers or just uh, anyone, yeah. his ancestors, the rituals that you have are passed down from person to person, lineage to lineage. That's probably just one of the rituals that he had back in the day was that presumably they thought that the spirits resided within the wood. Like it was actual spirits that he needed yeah. for it to rest. So he's simply just preserving the rituals as best as he can because, you know, once he passes away, those will also disappear. Yeah, you're right. And that's kind of the, exactly the vanishing breed idea of it. And, you know, you could make a flute out of a, out of any branch, you know, maybe, but uh, this is the version that Ed is capturing. It's the idea, uh, this, this dying art. And part of that is, uh, yeah, got to let that wood rest. But um, the next scene when they're actually carving the duck flute out, that's the scene where we played that sound bite from the idea that each branch uh, contains a flute and you have to, f- you have to carve it to find the flute inside of the branch. You just mentioned the idea that Every piece of wood has a, a spirit that sings through the mouth of a duck. That's what uh, that's what Ira says to Ed in this uh, interview. And it's in this scene when Ed is shooting, we sort of see the black and white documentary footage. Ed begins to just put the camera down because he's so fascinated in what's happening in front of him that uh, he kind of stops rolling and is in awe almost. Yeah, I like that little detail of him putting it down. For a split second, I thought that I was like a like an error in filming. I was like, oh, it's not supposed to put the camera down. Like oh, the like production the team must have missed that. <laughs> I was like, then he put the camera down. And I realized, I was like, oh, it was intentional. Yeah, he was truly fascinated. And this sort of idea gets sort of slam dunked at the end of the episode or towards the end when Ira asks uh, Ed, he says, which would you rather see, a picture of a condor or a condor? Quick correction, it's actually Ed who asks Ira the question. I'll play the clip. Yeah, because I was thinking it's just like the condors. The condors? Yeah, you know, which would you rather see, a picture of a condor or a condor? 
condor, no question. Yeah. That's such a... I don't think that question is as straightforward as they think it is. Now, at the surface level, it totally is simple. It's like, of course, you would go for the condor, not for the picture of the condor. But if we imagine that the picture of condor was done because it was an art piece and there was a reason that the photographer or the painter decided to make the condor, maybe that itself could be a separate piece than the condor. Do you get kind of what I'm saying? Yes, definitely. The idea that... uh an angle or a certain view of a condor is worth appreciating. Obviously a condor in its in person is something to see and something to behold and to experience. But uh, perhaps there's an art to capturing um, a certain viewpoint of a condor. So definitely that makes sense. But in this case, I was just trying to say that, uh, that Ed, when he answers that question, would you rather see a picture of a condor or a condor? Ed says, yeah, you're right. I guess I'd probably rather see a condor. Um, well, it just speaks true to his character when earlier in the episode he puts the camera down. He would rather be there in person with the duck flute mm. than, uh, than document it. And, and I, we're definitely jumping towards the end here. We can kind of dig back around. But um, ultimately, Ed becomes disenchanted with his documentary. He'd rather learn how to carve this flute than to document. He says something to the effect of... Uh, Life and art are a lot different, aren't they? It's when he's talking to Joel at the brick, uh, he brings up the fact that even though he's going to be documenting Ira and the flutes, it doesn't mean that there's still going to be flutes in the future just because of this, uh, this bit of footage. Yeah, Ed would rather partake in it rather than just documenting it, which are like one of those moments in movies or television shows where the painter puts down the paintbrush and puts it on the easel and decides to partake in the art, which has its own merits. Like, I understand why Ed is doing that and why he's forsaking the project. I can see it in both directions, but if this is the way that the episode wants to go through with it, I'm okay with that too. I think that's a pleasant lesson. I guess like a happy medium of of both of those lessons would be Ed could just make an instructional video, right? So a, a piece of film that would instruct future generations exactly how to make a, a duck flute. I could be wrong, but I feel like the documentary that Ed is making in this episode is more a, a study of the art and less uh, um, instruction of, of how to accomplish it. Mm. Yeah, I agree too. Though, wouldn't the best middle ground have yeah. been Ed learning how to do the flutes in his own manner? Like once Ooh. he learned from him, he would learn it in his own style and then from his own style it would be passed down and then presumably that person would add his own spin to it. Like lots of stories and myths are done that way. Right. No, I think that's kind of what he's doing. I mean, he's, he wants to be taught by Ira the way that Ira makes the flutes. And... Uh, we can't assume that Ed's not going to put his own spin on it. You know, perhaps That's he will true. stay a traditionalist, but, uh, but you know, every new generation brings something new. So I'm sure the, the flutes that Ed will be making are going to be slightly different from Ira's and perhaps there'll be new stories too. We can only hope. In that scene when he's talking to Joel, I don't know if you noticed, uh, this is, you know, we'll get, we'll get to it, but Joel has a massive hangover in this episode and uh, Joel is drinking iced water. That's his hangover cure. But I don't know if you saw that the ice cubes in his uh, glass of water are perfectly cubed. It was like almost, I, I wanted to say like, is that 
prop ice, you know, it looks that almost too... looked like prop ice. I think I, it might thought, be right. It's like too yeah. perfect. I was looking at it too, and I was like, that looks so great. Like as a piece of ice, I was like, yeah. there's no way that they, the piece of ice came out that way. It's not like it's a terribly long scene and the ice is going to melt, but I mean, the ice is going to melt on any, in any scene. It, it takes a long time to shoot a scene, even a short one. And of course you've got all these big movie lights, which are hot and those are going to, uh, you know, melt the ice faster too. So there's some reasoning to believe that it's probably prop ice. In fact, there's a, uh, there's a deleted scene where that prop ice, uh, you know, it stays on screen longer than it does in the broadcast of the episode. Uh, I think Chris enters the scene and has a conversation with Joel as he has this, um, glass of ice, um, put up against his head to kind of cool off his forehead. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I guess since we're on the topic, what, um, What's uh what's your like go to hangover cure? Uh greasy food. Greasy lots food. Lots and lots of greasy food so that I may puke it later. <laughs> Is it a hangover cure if it makes you puke? I guess that helps, you know. I guess that helps get it out of the system. I uh, yeah, that was that's always been my reasoning. Like number one, it tastes really good. And number two, you gotta have something in your stomach so that it can leave your stomach. So, you know, it might as well be that. <laughs> I guess so. Uh, what about you? Well, I was gonna say in that deleted scene, Chris, uh, he talks about hangover cures. He orders uh, two raw eggs, Worcestershire sauce, and beef bouillon. Um, but he says that the best cure for a hangover is three McDonald's cheeseburgers and a Jim Jumbo gulp, whatever, whatever that is. And is there another character in this episode that talks about like hangover cures or no? Yeah. Marilyn gives him hair of a dog. <laughs> yeah. I'll play the sound bite. What's that? Hair of the dog. Well, that's a good idea. That's very considerate, Marilyn. Thank you. What is that? What is in here? Hair of the dog. Dog hair? I wonder, that's like one of those lines where I wonder if, uh, if they thought of this as an idea and they were like, we got to put this in an episode somewhere. Like Marilyn gives them actual dog hair for hair of the dog. <laughs> yeah. So that reminds me of a concept that they had on parks and recreation where they had something called the candy jar. It was a literal glass jar that was filled with scraps of paper. And on the paper were all these discarded jokes that wouldn't necessarily fit into the scene, but they were too good of a joke to throw away. So they would seal it into this glass jar. So anytime they needed a button or a way to end a scene or just a good joke in general, they would reach through the candy jar, just unwrap one of the pieces of paper and be like, oh, this can work. Just like reword some of those sentences or okay, some of the words yeah. around and we can put it into there. That sounds like a candy jar moment to me with this hair of the dog. They just had that joke and they were like, we got to find an episode to put this joke in. It's so good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so in the end, what happens, as we said, Ed asks Ira to teach him how to make the ducks flutes. Um, but in exchange, Ed gives Ira the film. It's like he's done. It, it's a, a symbolic gesture that Ed is finished with the movie uh, and realized that's not exactly the goal he thought, you know, is the goal he thought he wanted, but then he realized uh, what he, what he really wants to do is, is uh, learn how to preserve this in a more meaningful way. And again, I think, I think we've been talking about this. It's, it's not to say that this documentary that Ed made is not um, a meaningful way of preserving this art. I, I think it's a, I think it's a it's probably a really great film. I wish we could see more of it, but, um, but in this story, according to Ed, he believes that uh, 
he wants to learn how to make these flutes. So before we get off of Ed's plot line, I want to talk about the idea of preservation of ideas. Yeah. So Ira is going to be the last one of his generation to know how to make these duck flutes. And it occurs to us that maybe Ed is afraid that this art form is going to disappear. And in doing so, he's now realizing that many things are going to disappear. Yeah. Like it's not just duck flutes that are going to disappear. Like concepts are going to be gone. Things that you thought were concrete, like latitude and longitude will no longer exist, which is frightening to him, which is why he decides to stop filming and partake in it. So he at least has the memories behind it. Oh yeah. That's a, that's a good observation. I feel like this whole episode is, um, especially Joel's plot line too, which maybe we can jump to next. Uh, this whole episode sort of has that sense of, you know, dying breeds, vanishing breeds and, and the pervading idea that one day everything's going to end and it won't be remembered, you know? And, Perhaps the idea of documenting this form of art, this duck flute, is a way of preserving it. And even Ed learning how to carve the duck flute himself, that's another way of preserving it. But maybe it's a little bit more than that. What you're pointing out, it's not just the fact of trying to preserve and expand the lifespan of something that you know is going to fade away eventually. It's becoming part of it, like partaking in it yourself and experiencing it. Because someday, whenever, even whenever that documentary uh, dies, you know, when that's gone, no one's going to be able to experience it. And Ed has the chance now to learn. So that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Ed gets to go through the activity of it. So he gets to say like, no, 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 I was a part of it. Not that I was simply a bystander of watching it. I get that feeling a lot of what we think Ed is feeling, this feeling of despair that things are going away. I get that when television shows end. Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Those television shows that you love and you hold on to and maybe in some part become part, a little bit part of your identity. Yeah. When they end, whether it was because it was canceled or it just ended naturally, they don't exist anymore. Yeah. whatsoever. Like there's never going to be any, any new episodes. Yeah. yeah, any further. Now you may continue to live through them, whether like it's through podcasts that are analyzing each other <laughs> like we're doing yeah. or, you know, just creators sending out tweets talking about like, oh, like, you know, I had this idea or something like that. But it's always really sad to me whenever I see television shows that I grew up with or that I'm currently living through just end and they're gone and you can no longer return back to that time in which the television show was still airing and still you had it in your brain that there's going to be a new episode for it. Uh, The first thing that comes to mind for me is that the podcast West Wing Weekly ended Yeah, and I was looking through my podcast feed and I saw that it was like way at the bottom and it occurred to me. I was like, oh, it's never going to come back to the top it's always going to remain at the bottom because oh, it was no. the last episode. Yeah, it's true for TV shows, for podcast series, for, for even when you finish a good book, you know, but there's something about an ending, the idea that it can't go any further. That is a positive in a way. I know that, I know that sounds pretty dark, but <laughs> no, endings have a, have a strong purpose, you know, and uh, 
you know, there's the opposite of what you're describing when a show doesn't end and it just gets worse and worse. And you kind of, you maybe, maybe you don't wish it had ended, but uh, you don't realize it, but you really do wish it had ended uh, before <laughs> so that it's not continuing. <laughs> you know, is it better to burn out or fade away uh, is the ultimate question. Yeah, I would, I would agree with you there, except for one television show. What's that? And I want this television show to keep going because I think it's just a cultural landmark and that I think it can just keep going. Uh, I, I, I think that television show is The Simpsons. Oh. And I know I'm, I'm going to catch a lot of flack yeah, for that because yeah, a lot yeah. of people are going to say, like, I was way better in seasons one through seven. But I like it because... It's the idea that you can watch a television show and then you can watch it with your children and be like, hey, I was watching this too. Now yeah. you're watching it and it's going to keep going on and on and on. There's, what, what am I, like Sesame Street? That's a, that's still yeah, going. That's, that's great. Yeah, good example. <laughs> okay, so I think we've covered Ed and Ira. Maybe we'll come back uh, or, or intertwine with them again. But for now, let's hop into Joel. Joel's quandary in this episode is uh, how does it actually come up? He realizes at some point early on in this episode that there aren't many Jews in Alaska. Well, he first thinks that there's some number of Jewish people that live in Alaska when Ed thinks that he can make the documentary about him. Oh, right. Ed wants to focus on uh, Joel as the vanishing breed. <laughs> yeah. And Joel's like, no, 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 no. There's like plenty of uh, Jewish people that live here. But then as he looks through the phone books and all the databases, no. Like, it turns out that he can't find any. Uh, one of the funnier ones that I found was that he was trying to look for any Cohens. Uh -huh. And I think it's Ed that says, like, Cohan? He's like, no, 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 no. Cohen with a with an E, not, no, not an a. Yankee Doodle Dandy. Uh, George Cohan, if you didn't know him, he was the father of American musicals. He was really well known for using dance as a way to forward the story in a book musical. Interesting. Yeah, it didn't happen until, like, really became mainstream when Oklahoma... Ah. from Rodgers and Hammerstein came into play when they used it. Uh, but what's really interesting about George Cohen is that there's actually a tax law, well, not necessarily law, but loophole <laughs> okay. named after him. So George Cohen would always be on the road a lot doing whatever vaudeville business he had. And when it came time to him to file the taxes, the IRS wanted him to record every single expenditure that he had. George argued that it was impossible for him to get an exact amount. So he argued that in court and the IRS said, okay, fair enough. As long as you get us like as close to an estimate as you can. And that became known as the Cohan rule, which is wow. when you estimate your expenditures for the purposes instead of the exact amount. But, you know, we're not like a money financial podcast. So... <laughs> You don't actually use that. Try to come say, very close to your expenditures. That doesn't sound legal. It, it is your last defense to use. Okay. And in fact, it's even <laughs> been challenged uh, recently where someone tried to do that, but they were also trying to use it underneath Section 274 regulations, which requires you to re record all travel expenses. And you need to have every single one documented in order to even use those, uh, uh, the, those deductions. So, yeah. Don't don't necessarily yeah. use that, listeners. Yeah, don't do what Cohen <laughs> did. But yeah, so Joel is searching for Jews by looking in the phone book, uh, you know, by, by trying to find Jewish-sounding last names. And his argument is that you can tell by someone's last name uh, if they're Jewish or not. And 
I mean, sure. Like I think that, I think that gives you a pretty good uh, hint, you know, but I'm Jewish and my last name is traditionally not Jewish at all, you know, and I think there are plenty of Jews who do not have the Steen or Stein or, or Berg, you know, sort of last names. And even there are, you know, Cohen's and Greenberg's that aren't Jewish, you know, I think that's a very poor system for, for determining if there is, you know, how can he definitively say that there are no Jews living in Arrowhead County um, just by looking at someone's last name? Yeah. He needs to develop a better Judar. Yeah. yeah that's, that's very inaccurate. I, I think especially for, you know, he's a person in the medical profession, you know, a, you know, scientist of sorts, you know, a studied person, you know, I think they would try to at least be a little more accurate. So Joel thinks that there is some form of a Jewish population in this obscure town named Vilichisk. Yeah. He's and like he searching has, a map, right? Yeah. And he has Maurice drive him. And this is the only scene that Maurice is seen in. And in oh, fact, really? him and that. Maggie are only in one scene a piece. Which scene is Maggie in? She is the one in which she goes to the barbershop where Hollings getting his beard shaved, I think. Oh, it's the very beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think he's getting his beard shaved. He's doing something with his face <laughs> and Maggie's delivering him his mail. All right. Yeah. We'll, we'll get to there in, in, uh, in the next plot line, but uh, let's stick with Joel. So yeah, I didn't even notice. So Maurice is just sort of in this one part where they go to Velichisk. Yeah, and Maurice is pointing out all of the mountains that are named after Jewish people in Alaska. And he's right on a few of them. So according to the Wikipedia page, History of the Jews in Alaska, which coincidentally <laughs> has northern exposure in it. Oh, wow. Uh, talking about Joel. <laughs> yeah, so Mount Ripaniski is real, uh, along with Mount Newbiter and Mount Applebaum and Mount Gruning. Okay. But there is no Mount Goldberg that, uh, you know, Maurice says hand to God exists. It's in the fictional, you know, town of Sicily. Yeah. They're just making up Alaska, uh, Alaskan landmarks. <laughs> so they drive to this small little town, but it's, I mean, from the looks of it, it's one store. Yeah. Like it's, it's one broken down, uh, General store. Gas station. Yeah, it's one just like general store that's abandoned, broken down, as you said. And uh, if you watch closely enough as they start to pull out, it's I think it's some of the last shots in this scene, uh, you get to see sort of the full exterior front face of this abandoned uh, Velichisk general store. If you noticed on the left side you can actually see the frame. It's like a facade. You can see the frame. So there's no side <laughs> of the building. It's just like a little, you know, triangle prop up on the side. Hey, you got to save money, man. Props. Yeah. <laughs> they got to do what they can do. Um, yeah, but it was, you know, enough to make a convincing uh, short little scene for you. So Joel's plotline kind of intertwines with Holling's plotline, but you know, what's really strange about Joel's plotline is that it has no real resolution so Joel goes and meets with Holling, you know, checks up on him because Shelly implores him to say like, hey, I want you to go make sure he's okay. And he goes and he drinks with him and gets blackout drunk or at least presumably 
drunk enough that he's hung over and has to cancel meetings the next day or doctor appointments. Yeah. But after that happens, he's in the bar and he's with Chris and he's discussing about the, his isolation and how he feels like he's the last Jewish person in Alaska. And then that's it. Like there's no other denouement for Joel. That's true. I'm trying to think of how this episode winds down with Joel, but more on that in a second. I will say I never really knew the statistic uh, that Joel says here. You know, this show was shot in 1991. And so Joel says at the time there are 250 million people living in America and only 5 million of those are, are Jews. Today it's about 320 million people living in America now and 6.5 million of those are Jews. So still actually even more of a, a divide in that, in that ratio. Um, I never thought it was that small of a number. Yeah, it's smaller than you think. I remember looking into it one day. In fact, I think according to the latest census data, I think there's 6,000 Jewish people living in Alaska. So there's only an increase of a few thousand from what Joel is quoting from 1990. Yeah, what did he say? Uh, Did he say how many were in Alaska in this episode? Was it a thousand something or? I want to say it was about 2,000. Wow, yeah. So that is, you know, still not not a huge increase. But yeah, about Joel's sort of conclusion in this episode, I think you're right. I don't think he really finds an answer. I think rather what's happening in this episode is uh, he realizes that he is, uh, quote unquote, of a dying breed, or he, he is alone, I guess. In Arrowhead County, he's the only Jew, according to this episode. But what does that say? I think that, it's supposed to juxtapose against Holling and Shelley. So sometimes at the same exact time, you can be going through despair or isolation or loneliness or pangs of hopelessness while just a few blocks down and a few hours later, Shelley and Holling are coming back together. Like they're having such a amazing moment and redefining of their love and that's all i could really get out of it because it ends on such a morose note for joel i think you were right at the beginning of this episode when you were talking about how how this is sort of a bleak episode of northern exposure um but you know i don't think it falls into despair at the end obviously every character you know every plot line Uh, deals with this dread and this existential crisis that everything's going to go away forever in the end. But, you know, I think at the end of the episode and throughout, there are things, moments of optimism, especially Joel. You know, I know he ends in sort of a bleak way, but there are moments of optimism that he shows. And uh, the way this episode concludes ultimately um, gives you a little bit of hope. I think you know, I can agree with you that that this show may get morose and uh, bleak at times, and 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 heavy, but uh, but I think it's got um, a pretty hopeful heart, perhaps. Yeah, I would say that optimism is part of the DNA, the bloodstream of the show. But I don't think there's anything wrong occasionally for letting one of the plot lines just end the way it ended with Joel, with him just reflecting or them just leaving it for the audience to decipher rather than wrapping it up nicely with a bow and having some sort of uh, twist to 
show that like, hey, you're not the last Jewish person in Sicily. Like there's like a whole hidden sect there. <laughs> I think right, it's right. realistic. I, I think it's fine to do that occasionally. Yeah, that's I agree. It's a it's a really it's a really good ending. You know, it's not such a success or a triumph, but uh, more just the realization of what he was concerned about in the beginning. It's true. You know, he is uh, the one and only. And I think I think this is actually in a deleted scene. I don't think this happens in broadcast, but when he's talking to Chris, uh, Chris calls him the prince, sort of a very princely vibe because he's, you know, sort of an ambassador of Jews maybe in uh, <laughs> in this area. All right, well, we were kind of dancing around it, but let's start from the beginning with Hauling. So you mentioned there's a scene with Maggie. It's perhaps the only scene with Maggie in this episode. Yeah, so Maggie's delivering the mail, and Hauling thinks it's for the IRS because right, he doesn't pay he, taxes. He owes. <laughs> he still owes the IRS. Yeah, but no. Wait, 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 wait. Uh-huh. Uh, wait, how does he still owe the IRS? Because Chris actually gave him the money, right? He loaned him the money. It's probably like follow up. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. That's all I can imagine. I'm worried <laughs> that Hauling spent all of uh, Chris's IRS money on that telescope. <laughs> repairing the telescope and there's uh, no way that telescope cost him how much did he owe like six thousand or nine thousand or something nine thousand yes that's how much he owed the irs uh so okay yeah anyway the letter's not from the irs who's it from yeah it is actually it doesn't say who it's from that i think about it it does we know the content oh wait does it i have it in my notes that it's from cousin celeste in quebec oh i must have missed that then but yeah so, so what are the contents of the note? Uh, Uncle Charlie has bought the farm. Bit the dust, bought the farm, as we say in this podcast, yes. He was apparently playing backup for Aaron Neville at Tipitina's in New Orleans, you know, down south. And he just keeled over. And his funeral was the previous Tuesday. And there's a note in the letter that says, they bury them above ground there, you know? Because, <laughs> of course, New Orleans is below sea level. It's... Pretty, pretty far down south. I think that just illustrates the point that whenever you hear life-shattering news, you don't immediately think about the subject in hand, but you think about your own life yeah. uh, immediately. So instead of thinking about Uncle Charlie, which he does think about, yeah. he thinks about how it's affecting him, how he hasn't actually truly lived life. And he thinks about that fairly quickly and... You know, I think that's just natural. And I think it's just reflecting that. Everyone does that. Whenever you hear something really big, like your friends getting uh, married or they're having children or, you know, stuff like that, you start thinking about yourself. And you're like, oh, crap. What uh, All I did was eat Doritos today. Like, crap. Yeah, these key life moments in, uh, in other people's lives uh, serve as sort of like a context or, or sort of put your life in context, you know, sort of a comparison how you're leading your life and and where you are in relation to what's happening in the world outside of you. You know, things change in big ways every day outside of your life. And it's hard to kind of contextualize that within your day to day life. Yeah, I agree. I think that what's the strangest way for him to cope with this is that he eats a lot of potatoes. Okay. So what happens is Holling is going through all of, I guess, Uncle Charlie's old stuff or maybe Holling's old stuff, like just memories. He's, I think it's Holling's old stuff. Because it's like his puppets and, and things mm-hmm. like that. We learned that Uncle Charlie played fiddle. He was 110 when he died. And if you do the math, 
because of the longevity in Hollings genes, uh, at 63, he's in his midlife crisis. You know, most people have a midlife crisis at 40. His is at 63 because he's projected to live uh, past 100. Just, that's just the way his bloodline works, according to this show. And um, yeah, so about the potatoes. In that little box, as he's like digging through his old stuff, he finds uh, a bottle of the good stuff, he says, which I guess is uh, like sort of a special moonshine that he's made. And he goes to take one last drink for Uncle Charlie, but it's empty. So what happens next? You're talking about the potatoes. I'll get there. So what happens <laughs> next is uh, Shelly reports that Holling went missing and he took all of the potatoes with him. He took like the, the curly fries and the hash browns, like every sort of potato product that they had at the brick is now gone. He would be using the potatoes to make moonshine. Oh, that in, makes in more his, sense. Uh, in his still, yeah. Oh, okay. I thought he was just eating them, <laughs> like like some sort of like he Potato needed carbohydrates <laughs> to be his junk food or something. Oh, oh, okay. oh, it's like he he subsists on potatoes and grain alcohol. Like he just drinks drinks vodka and eats potatoes. That's his diet. Yeah, I thought that was like his his mo, his strategy <laughs> to deal with life chattering news. Kind of like how people eat like I don't know, like Ben and Jerry's whenever they go through a breakup. His was potato and vodkas. Yeah, it's like you know I can drink as much vodka as I want, but I got to make sure I eat these potatoes or else I'm gonna get <laughs> malnourished. Oh man, Lee, do you want to hear one of the? One of my favorite comic strips, but also one of the saddest comic strips that I've ever read. Okay. So it's basically, it's a young child and he's looking through like a car magazine and he sees the car of his dream. It's like some sort of sports car, like a Ferrari or something, something that cost astronomical amounts of money. And the comic strip panel show him like mowing the lawn and going to college and getting like a good job and just saving up money. And finally at the age of 40, he can afford this Ferrari. He's driving it out of the dealership and he's so happy. And then some teenage girls drive up next to him and they go, Ah, oh, ew, how disgusting. Like a man going through a midlife crisis, suddenly buying a Ferrari. Ah, I was like, <laughs> oh, that's heartbreaking. That guy's only wanted that his entire life. <laughs> <laughs> that's why you can't have your like one dream be a car because then people will just say it's your midlife crisis by the time. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that what all midlife crises are? You just like get what you wanted when you were a kid? Ba uh, yeah, basically. <laughs> Because you want to you feel young, I guess. Yeah, just reattaching yourself to however you can to your childhood. Have you ever had a mid midlife crisis? Would that be a quarter-life crisis? Yeah, so like statistically, around like your mid-20s? Uh, sure, like out of college. Like I went to school for film, so there's a, that's not a very smart decision <laughs> for <laughs> a career. So, you know, uh, after college, you know, just sort of bumbling around jobs, doing random gigs and thinking like, what am I going to do for my life? You know, but, um, I would, I wouldn't say it was, I wouldn't feel as crippled maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. I didn't mean it's, to, it's hard drag to us into a dark path. No, it's okay. It's hard to think about. Cause obviously at the time, like I, I'm always, you know, I'm always worried about stuff like that, but, uh, I'm okay today. So <laughs> it's hard, it's hard to say. Yeah, like we're supposed to have gone through a mid midlife crisis and it's kind of hard to tell if you've already gone through it or you're approaching it or you're currently <laughs> living through it. But I also think it's very frightening to be told that you are 
because then you could just work the math backwards and be like, oh, crap, I'm going to actually, uh, nah, if this is where my midlife crisis is happening, that means I'm actually going to die and just have this a lot of time. <laughs> I don't think a midlife crisis has to do with uh, the day that you're going to die there, right? It's just sort of like the period of uh, your social life as you're approaching certain eras of your life, right? Uh, well, not for hauling. He experiences well, yes, that's, it at 60. That's actually true. <laughs> You're right, yeah. And what is it? Like Chris says he experienced his, you know, what would have been our quarter life crisis. That's his midlife crisis because the males in Chris's family tend to live only in their to their 40s maybe. Oh, yeah, we forgot about Chris this episode. You know, he's there but not as a super major plot point. Right. He's, he's in a couple different uh, scenes with different characters. Like we said, he's with Joel and, and he's with, uh, he's with hauling a little bit. Let's, let's talk about, uh, let's get there. So hauling, as we said, is he's getting all those potatoes to distill and uh, make vodka. He says a hundred proof. So he's in this random shack. I guess they, they keep referring to it as the shack, right? No, they call it the still. The still, my bad. So he's in this random shack called the still and he's uh, just brewing potato vodka till the end of times. And Chris, uh, does Chris go out there on a calling or does he just go to go hang out with, with hauling? I think it's both. Shelly definitely doesn't send him there. Uh, okay. Shelly sends Joel there, right. but I think that Chris wasn't informed by anybody. I okay. think he wants to go there just to see how Hauling's doing. Well, he wasn't like commanded, but I think someone told yeah. him. To, someone told him that Hauling is probably out in the still, maybe or, oh, that's what it was. I think Shelley was explaining to him that Hauling just disappeared. Oh, yeah, and then you're he's right. like, I think I know what might be happening, and then Chris finds him at the still. Yeah, you're right, and it's all caused because Chris had to eat rice for breakfast, which is actually not that unusual. <laughs> I, I eat about, rice. Yeah, I forgot about that scene. And he's like totally embracing it. He's like, you know, it's like he was saying like certain cultures always eat rice for breakfast. Like you're saying you, you eat uh, rice all the time. Yeah, but not the standard rice. It's usually in like a porridge format. Right. Uh, okay. Yeah. yeah. In Chinese, it's called chi fan. Uh, okay. That's well, it could be also be called kanji. Yeah. But, uh, the way I grew up, okay. we just called it chi fan, gotcha. which is... Yeah, fairly common in China. Yeah, not a bad breakfast, but I guess at the break, if you're just eating plain white rice, it's that's a little different from rice porridge. Yeah, but that's how he knows that Holling is drinking himself into a stupor, which is not a bad plan, I guess. You're going through <laughs> midlife crisis just to drink vodka all day. Well, according to Chris, his, his midlife crisis, which happened... Uh, you know, the, in the 22nd year of his life, he was drunk for a full year, 365 days. He doesn't remember a thing. He blacked out for a whole year. That can't be good, like, mentally. Like, that for your brain, you can't. You cannot black out for 365 days. It's not even healthy to black out for <laughs> one day. Yeah, I don't know the, yeah, physical repercussions, the mental repercussions, Chris seems to be doing okay, but you know, as we said, he's he he even says that he's not going to survive past his forties. That's just the uh, hand that he's been dealt in life. But um, during this scene, when he's talking about that that sort of midlife crisis that he went through, there's an interesting uh, sort of camera move. There's sort of a dolly. It starts 
into two shot from behind Chris and Holling as they're sitting together drinking. And almost, it's sort of like a circular dolly or a diagonal dolly. It sort of wraps around Chris and Holling and puts them into profile as Chris is telling the story about uh, how for a couple of months he lived naked in a cave down in the Jemez Mountains in New Mexico. Yeah, there's actually a problem with the captions in the dialogue because I think the dialogue says Mexico and I'm going to say the captions corrects it to New Mexico's because the mountain range is in New Mexico. Yeah, I think you're right, actually. I, I, I was looking at the captions, but I think I think he does say Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, should be New Mexico. So Holling returns back to the brick for a brief moment to, I guess, get more potatoes? Yeah, I think it's not so. not actually entirely clear. I, oh, wait, I think it's to get food because I think he, right. he grabs something off the counter. But him and Shelly kind of get into a spat and he's telling her, and he's like, oh, well, you're so young and pretty and everyone wants to be with you and they're going to be with you eventually when I go away, when I eventually die and kind of just shoes her off and causes a divide between them and he grabs some food and just goes back to his still. Yeah, it's a, it's sort of um, a low point for Shelly and Holling, but I think it's right after this that Shelly goes to see Joel about Holling. Uh, and, and so, you know, it, it shows that Shelly still cares for him even after this sort of a scary argument that they they have together. But I do think it's really funny. I don't know if you caught this, but when Shelly is talking with Joel, I'll play the sound bite real fast. Holly's having a midlife crisis? Yeah. The, the man's 63. Yeah. Yeah, that piece of footage when Shelly says, yeah, it's the same exact response used twice in succession. So it's just like a repeat of... <laughs> Her saying, yeah, both times. The same exact uh, (laughs) moment. I just thought that was pretty funny. So as a result of this meeting with Joel, he's going to, uh, you know, try to go suss out Holling, figure out what's wrong with him, see if he can help him and and bring him back. Uh, And it's sort of, this, this whole little encounter sort of reminds me of that movie Apocalypse Now, the idea of like, you have to go upriver and try to bring back someone who has gone a little too far over the edge. And, <laughs> and in so doing, you, you're you sort of um, persuaded to, you know, succumb to the same horrors, I guess. Like, you know, you need to be saved by the end of the, by the, end of the movie. Yeah. What is, what is that popular phrase from Apocalypse Now? Is it a, I love the smell of napalm in the morning? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, I guess in this case, it's uh, the smell of moonshine, bootleg... <laughs> 100 proof vodka. Vodka, yeah. (laughs) So it's in this scene when Joel is, you know, trying to point out to Holling the idea that it's like, you know, basically Holling has a royal flesh in life. You know, Joel is the optimist here. He's saying like he has a beautiful young wife. He owns a bar, you know. He lives in Alaska, which is this uh, wilderness that has not been touched by man. You know, it's pure nature. Uh, and of course, Joel says, you know, this is not something that I want myself, but a lot of people would, would really love this, this life. But, um, Holling spins it right back at him, sort of pessimistic. Uh, it's, it's just a very clear black and white, you know, sort of situation going on. Yeah. Holling kind of says things that you only say when you want to hurt somebody. Yeah, that's true. 
I don't know if Holling genuinely believes what he is saying, but I at the moment he's just I like think angry. he's just trying to, like super angry at life at yeah at something yeah he's just lashing out and trying to look for any gaps in the armor that he can find to you know injure the person yeah and by the end of the scene uh, Holling offers the moonshine vodka and Joel accepts so it's sort of you know a, a representation of you know, Holling's argument winning over and drag, <laughs> dragging Joel down with him. And uh, there's a very uh, beautiful scene here uh, after this when Holling wakes up. Uh, he had just like passed out from drinking and there's sort of this beautiful steel guitar playing in the background. And Holling sees that Joel has also passed out. Holling goes over to him and puts a blanket on him. And then Holling goes back, you know, I think he takes a slug and then goes back to sleep in his cot. And there's no dialogue in this scene. It's just like the music and uh, sort of this comforting, you know, they're there together, <laughs> suffering through it somehow. Uh, and the very next scene is Ed watching his footage, you know, the duck flute. And again, this is a whole scene without any dialogue. It's just sort of the music coming from the duck flute. I thought it was pretty cool that uh, the duck flute has like some nice reverb effect on it. So I don't know if Ed added that somehow in a sort of a sound manipulator or like, I don't know, some sort of reverb pedal on his uh, sound mixer. But yeah, definitely didn't sound like an actual live duck flute unless they were playing in a very reverberant room, I guess. Yeah, it's one of those scenes that I thought definitely would have been cut and replaced with another scene with dialogue. Yeah, that's true. It's, it's interesting that they chose to keep these two scenes, but I think it's very effective because it's two back to back scenes with no dialogue, just sort of that mood, that, um, wordless sort of expression. I don't know how to describe it. (laughs) Yeah, no, I totally get what you mean. It's showing rather than telling. And there is this scene in here. Uh, there is a Chris scene, like the, the sort of Chris sermon, that happens right after Ed is watching his footage. Uh, maybe there's sort of a, the, the, the flute music carries over to some mm-hmm. images of a snowy exterior. Chris begins to read a quote from Dante. In the middle of the journey of our life, I came to myself within a dark wood where the straight way was lost. Oh, how hard it is to tell of that wood, savage and harsh and dense, the thought of which renews my fear. So bitter is it that death is hardly more. And um, Chris is expounding about the idea of a midlife crisis, you know, that he says something pretty interesting. The idea that your past is not a straight line, but rather a giant sea littered with all your experiences on the far horizon. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting concept, in particular how it plays to the end with Holling and Shelley. Yeah. It catapults into there. Yeah, this is kind of like bringing us towards that ending. And I guess we can get right there, but I I did want to say the real catalyst for bringing Holling back to uh, Sicily, I guess, is Marilyn. Sort of like a deus ex Marilyn, right? She just comes into the shed and says, it's time. (laughs) It's time for you to go back or or it's something like that. Time for you to go home. Uh, Yeah. Very monotone. Yeah. I mean, I guess maybe it makes sense that Shelly has sort of this surprise set up for Holling, which we'll get to. So maybe she's, she asks Marilyn to grab him uh, for her. But at the time, before we saw that uh, Shelly had set this all up, it really does feel sort of deus ex Marilyn. 
Yeah, I, of all the characters to fetch Holling, I guess she would have been the best one because she is the most neutral to his situation. How do you mean? Well, Joel has already went and visited him. Chris has already visited him. It can't be Shelly herself. Uh, Shelly and Maurice are apparently just only going to be in one scene. So <laughs> it really just leaves one character left. Oh, you mean uh, Maggie and Maurice? Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Maggie and Maurice. Uh, I guess Ed could also fetch him. That is, that's true. Yeah. One of his titles, but I guess Ed was too busy with the, uh, documentary. Yeah. So it had to be her. I guess so. I mean, whatever. It felt a little forced, but it makes sense that someone's got to grab hauling because Shelly is busy, uh, preparing at the brick, which actually, before we get there, I did just want to say, I'm seeing it in my notes because it's near this, uh, this whole area. But, uh, Joel, when he gets that hair of the dog, I like that he says um, he's so hung over his eyelashes hurt. I just have that written down. <laughs> <laughs> he asks, what is it? It's like oatmeal or something is a hangover cure, V8. Uh, those are some more hangover cures I have written down from this episode. But anyway, sorry, not to get off topic. I was just no, uh, no, no. seeing that in my notes nearby. But yes, so Hauling returns to the brick. It's dark. And the lights come on and there's a cardboard sort of puppet theater, right? Yeah, like a amateurish puppet stage, yeah. um, you know, show. And the puppets were the same ones that were used uh, from his childhood. Right. They're from the, that box that he was uncovering. Yeah. Yeah. Hauling used to reference that the puppets were uh, toys that he had. So going off of what Chris was saying, he was saying that the past is kind of like the amalgamation of our present. So in this instance, it was like using the past to go confront the present, which is going to lead to the future. It's all going together in just a smooth, linear movement of what's happening right here. And I really liked it. It's a very sweet scene where Shelly is trying to replay the past to remind Holly that the present isn't so bad because they have each other for the future. You're right. Yeah. It's so super wholesome and, and just lovely. And uh, yeah, Shelly is telling the story of Holling's life. You know, it's sort of a little puppet biography. Uh, we learned that Holling was born on New Year's Day in 1929. And his full name is Holling Gustav Fincourt. And yeah, there's some music accompanying it. It's like sort of a jaunty, it's actually like a little jaunty piano version of Maggie's theme. I don't know if you caught that. There's some of that melody from Maggie's theme. There is. I thought it was a really pleasant piano melody. It's really good. I mean, mean, the the melody jumps around a lot. For a moment, it does, uh, plays with Maggie's theme, uh, but, you know, it has a lot of different movements in it. But I love um, the reaction shots on Hauling. He, you know, he sits down and he's watching this puppet show and, uh, the camera slowly moves into him and his reaction isn't like, um, necessarily overjoyed or surprised. It's like he's struck, like he's kind of confused. Like he doesn't really understand what he's seeing. Like he can't really believe his eyes. Uh, and then he starts to cry and it's like captured in this close up. And I got to say, man, I, I shed a couple tears watching this episode. <laughs> it's just such a wholesome and pretty ending, I think. Yeah, I think that this ending might be one of my favorites so yeah. far. Um, just the idea behind it and the context and how much we're able to see just the relationship 
between Shelley and Holly and how to me from what I'm able to see it's the first time where the age difference is played positively and yeah what I mean by that is that oftentimes we remark on the age difference between 63 year old Holly and how old is she? She's is 19 Shelley in this episode. 19? Mm-hmm. She's 19 years old. And we always say like, oh, well, that's, you know, really odd. That's really strange. And I still believe that. <laughs> I haven't changed my mind on that. <laughs> but Shelly is showing that, hey, you know, I'm here and it doesn't matter that you're of this age. Because even though I wasn't there for the past, like when you were going through all this stuff, I can still help you guide through it and help you get to the end, at least to the finish line. And I like the idea that they use the puppets or something from his childhood. It could have been anything, but in this instance, it was puppets. They use that because what better way for your midlife crisis than to revert back to childhood, which is with the puppets, in order to go to the end? Because you don't know what the end's going to be for the future. It's true. So this is the only way in which you can reach the halfway mark. True. And as you said, it's just this incredible demonstration of love and care from Shelley, you know, preparing all of this and putting on this show and just sort of championing Holling, you know, and his story. It's something that I thought about. It's like, if you're ever down on yourself and, you know, not feeling so great, just think of your life as a puppet show, like you being the star of a puppet show. It's so positive and playful, you know? And I don't know, why is this scene so effective? It's, you know, an amalgamation of the music. Uh, the approach to the story is very positive and, and sort of grandiose. And, uh, you know, as I'm trying to say, it's really easy to be critical of yourself, like your own biggest critic, you know. And, you know, maybe it's hard to believe that other people could think that your life is so great in this great story. But, you know, it's kind of like anytime someone compliments you, it's such a nice feeling because it's a surprise, you know, and it's great when you have someone like a friend or like Shelly who can show you that there are fun and exciting and great things that are happening in your life every day. And so that's why I say, think of your life as like a puppet show, uh, even normal everyday life experiences, uh, can be a great story. If, yeah, I totally agree with what you're saying, but if this was like, if I was dialed down to cynic mode, I would say <laughs> like, oh, is that because you believe that we all just have strings controlling us? <laughs> so like our actions and our destiny is actually predetermined and controlled yes. by some sort of higher power. <laughs> there is no free will. That's kind of the message of this episode, right? Of course. <laughs> and we're all going to die and it's going to mean nothing. Uh, mm-hmm. No. No, yeah, that's great. Uh, devil's advocate. Um, no, yeah, I do really think, um, yeah, I, I, I'm not surprised to hear that this is one of your favorite endings. It's a, Somehow it's really powerful, I think, um, to, to see that. Well, now that we talked about the ending and the episode, let's toss it to our guest analyst and see what he has to think about it. Yes, so this week our guest is Steven. He is an editor in the uh, film and TV world. Uh, So, you know, he's had some experience with uh, watching and working in movies, and um, hopefully he can have a pretty interesting insight on this episode. Let's, Let's just see what he has to say. So I don't know if I liked it, but that's not really saying a whole lot because I don't watch a lot of TV. Um, I I really like endings, and so I really like for a story to, like, start and come to some sort of conclusion and have finality, and so... 
watching like long form, long running, meandering shows, just usually it's in, in my wheelhouse. So it was really fascinating to jump. I don't even know if this is smack dab in the middle or where this is in like this show's lifespan, but being thrown into season three somewhere in the middle, like it gave it this like really familiar, familiar feel where like this is how just TV shows feel in a way. I feel like I knew these characters or had known them. I could like make up backstories, but I know that those would be wrong. But also, you know, like I have no idea who like the... (laughs) what this show is about. I mean, my first thought watching it through is uh, the young man reminded me a lot of Adam Driver for some reason. Um, and it actually took me a minute to try to figure out whether or not he was Adam Driver. Uh, and that's just because I'm kind of bad with actors and fully confident it's not him now. But for the first scene that just kind of throws you in the middle of chaos, um, I don't know, wasn't sure. I thought it was pretty funny that, like, this is, like, an episode with a shout-out to Tip Tina's. Um, Like, being in New Orleans, a show that takes place in Alaska that has a shout-out to New Orleans is pretty fun. But overall, it just kind of had this, like, voice and tone and mood that felt very much like the showrunners having, like, a midlife crisis and, like, this is what they want. I don't know. It's really hard for me to get over the fact that, like, this old trapper guy had somehow won over this like young woman who is just totally enraptured by him and then like has this midlife crisis puppet show which I really like puppet shows in like movies and TVs I, I think it's like a lot of fun but then the end of the puppet show is like hey your life might be in shambles and everyone might die but at least you have me I don't know I thought it was like a really strange perspective on like midlife crises um maybe you know just because of stuff that i'm going through personally and i just totally disagree (laughs) with the way in which they address it um but i don't know it felt like there was like this this there's definitely like a really strong voice from a showrunner or at least in this episode um that seems to be coming across uh i found i think my favorite part about the episode was definitely uh, the young man hanging out with the Native American man and creating the duck flute. I think that that was very enjoyable early on. Kind of gets a little weird too, though. Feeling very much like, yeah, like, you know, our old ways are going to die. And like, that's just what happened and it's going to move on. And like, I don't know, there was this real lack of like a remorse for <laughs> the eradication of Native peoples and their ways. But I was really charmed by the show the whole time, and I could, like, find myself easily watching another episode. I'm not sure why, but it was just charming. Um, So I think I'm running out of time here. So uh, anyways, thanks for inviting me to watch the episode, and, uh, like, I I liked it, um, but kind of. All right, so that was Steven. He liked it, but kind of. Yeah, it, he, mixed reviews. Let's yeah. call it that. <laughs> but yeah, Memento Mori. Remember, you must die. I don't think he was a fan of that idea. I mean, in so much that you know, we we all have to come to terms with that. You know, it's not necessarily saying you're not a fan of it, but it's you know, kind of uh, not a very uplifting uh, feeling, but yet still charming. You know, he he did point out that the show has a certain amount of charm, and it's. 
you know, why is it, uh, something that he, he would feel comfortable watching more of, you know, he, he was curious. He's like, I don't really know why that is, but, uh, but there's something about it that feels comfortable. You know, he talks about the well-established sort of feeling of, uh, the show has been running for some time and it feels like all the characters sort of fit their place. They've been there for a while. Uh, they, they sort of make sense in this world. Yeah, they they slot into each other like puzzle pieces. But the thing that I find most interesting is that he said that he doesn't particularly like television shows or watch television shows because right. there's no finality to them unless you get to the very last episode. But generally, the middle section of a television show, the the middle seasons, they're returning back to the status quo. And in fact, it could almost be argued that most television episodes are kind of like that. They always return back to what it was originally. Yeah, and like, so what you're saying, like in a, in a TV show, if some major change happens in an episode, it always has to revert back to sort of the status quo by the end of the episode. Um, so, you know, there may be moments in a TV series that have little endings, you know, but there, there's no major ending, I guess, until the end, the, the series finale, Right. I guess unlike a movie, you know, there's maybe just some small endings throughout an episode. Yeah. Yeah. I like how he thought that it was Kylo Ren. Oh, even yeah. Though, even who, though Adam Driver would have been I say, <laughs> like eight years old. <laughs> so who did he think was Adam Driver? Was he thinking Joel? Yeah, I think he was thinking Joel. I think so. So he was talking about in the beginning of the episode. I mean, that's who I would think. But there was a line that he says uh, when he's talking about what this show is about. You know, he's, he doesn't even know what this show is about. It almost sounds like he was about to say he didn't know who the... Um, but then he stops himself. like, And then he says what the show is about. So I almost wonder if he was going to say he he didn't know who the main character was in the show. Because that's been a something that our guests have brought up in the past. Kind of like, especially when they're thrown in in the middle of, uh, you know, a, a season, they're kind of confused as to who the protagonist is of the show. Yeah. Hmm. That's a good point. Also, now that you're talking about this, maybe this episode despite whoever we would have sent it to would have reacted in the same way that Steven reacted because they would have had no context yeah, whatsoever. And this episode deals heavily with the passage of time and how ideas become extinct. So with that mindset, maybe many people would have been put off. Yeah. Well, he did say that it felt like this episode was in a space uh, in this season where the characters were sort of established, you know, but perhaps it's that, you know, we, what we're talking about is a lot of these plots, you know, especially we were talking about with Joel, it doesn't really feel necessarily super resolved. And same with Ed, you know, I guess he sort of reaches his uh, realization at the end, his his sort of conclusion. Um, but there's a lot of sort of, I don't know, despair perhaps, but there's some hope in there at the end as well. But the idea that there's not very many strong endings, you know, in this episode. We keep talking about endings. But I think that's sort of true for the series overall, but specifically this episode perhaps feels anticlimactic or maybe abandoned. Like sort of like the storylines, the the plot lines may have 
been abandoned. I agree. And I think that maybe that was intentional. Like the only way that you yeah. can ever really handle this is just by abandoning it. Yeah, maybe not so much that, you know, that's your only option is, is to abandon it, but rather um, they don't want to set out a solution, you know, because it's, it's never clean and never easy like that, you know. So it's hard to just say this is how it is and this is how we will uh, solve this problem, but rather just kind of pointing an awareness uh, at this problem. No, you're right. We enter the world meandering and we leave the world meandering. It's true. It's true. Speaking of being sort of smack dab in the middle here, I did want to mention that this kind of, I think we are pretty much smack dab in the middle of season three, pretty close to it. Though if you were to count all the episodes of the entire series, this is not the middle episode. We haven't gotten there yet. But uh, in terms of seasons, yeah, we're kind of smack dab in the middle of the show. Yeah, we're going through the dog days of the summer, as they would call it. <laughs> what the dog days are those the middle of the summer? Is that what you mean? Yeah, like the hottest part, like uh, the ones in which you're just struggling to get through. <laughs> Not that I'm saying what I'm struggling to get through these. It's just to be, oh, that was the only metaphor I had on hand. No, yeah, it's a struggle for sure. Um, Steven mentions that, you know, his favorite storyline in the episode is the duck flutes. I think that's, that's probably one of the better ones, I'd say. I like the conclusion of the Shelley and Hauling. Uh, I like the moments when Hauling gets to sort of dream, you know, if that's a way to say it with, with, with Chris and, uh, and the scene when he puts the, the blanket on Joel. But overall, I, I think my favorite might be the Ed and Ira plotline. What about you? Probably, I'm going to go with Holly and Shelly, if only because I know that oftentimes it will not be my favorite and in fact will most likely be my least liked part of the episode. So I'm yeah. going to take it where I can take it. I'm going <laughs> to say it's this one. True. I mean, yeah, it's uh, still, there are some moments in this episode that were kind of weird. Like Shelly says something like she and Holling did it a million times, you know? And and just some awkward, I don't know, relationships. I like the euphemism. What's that? Uh, I What's, like the euphemism they used, uh, the hanky-panky. <laughs> it's like skiddly pooping. There's a, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of that in this episode as well. But I think we finally found one of those episodes where, you know, this relationship is sort of handled with some care and uh, you can see sort of a real affection, at least in that very last scene. And we said it already, but very effective uh, closing of the scene of the episode. You know, it's uh, I know I used the dog days of summer metaphor earlier, but maybe this is like the January of episodes. How does that mean? You know how like there's gray skies in January and it's incredibly... Bleak. Oh, yeah, because we were talking about how morose this episode is. Yeah, and it even follows chronologically because they just had Christmas. Yeah, the episode Christmas recently. Episodes. So this would True. be it. Yeah, I think the best way to end it is just with this line from this poem that I heard recently from Kava Akbar. It's been January for months in both directions. Gotta love that, uh, that John Green influence on the podcast. <laughs> Mm-hmm, yeah, it. he's been talking about that in uh, Vlogbrothers and, and in his uh, in his podcast too, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Anthropocene Reviewed. And it's just a lovely line. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's uh, should be mentioned that this episode aired in January of 1992. So yeah, Perfect. a very January episode indeed. 
And to end this episode, I'd like to play a little soundbite. It's from the deleted scene. It's a scene with Joel and Halling, uh, where Joel, again, plays the optimist. Uh, it's a nice little positive sentiment to close us out on this uh, dreary uh, January episode. Sometimes you feel bad. You hate your life. You feel like a failure, but it's just some of the time, half the time, 40%, even less. Most of the time, it's not so bad. And sometimes it's even pretty good. Like tonight. It's a nice night. Just to be here. To be on this earth. It's pretty amazing. All right, Charles. Well, we've got the next episode next week will be Burning Down the House. It's the 14th episode in season three. Burning Down the House. Uh, thoughts on that? What do you think? Does David Byrne guest star in the episode? <laughs> Man, that'd be such a surprise. I can't say yes or no. All right. Well, Charles, I'll see you next week. All right. I'll see you next week. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme song was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Steven for being our guest analyst. If you'd like to write into the podcast, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com. And of course... Thank you for listening. This will be just 30 seconds of room tone. There you go, Lee.